Welcome to the Fallout Podcast, episode 35, a.k.a. Serpentine, Serpentine, it's a mixed bag of fall songs, all 525, rigged out in eminent terrorism, only radicable and perforated into four straggles. Hanley, 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 what slash Trafford spur currently in round one of this outing where we will ratify around the clock. Tonight, Hotel Bloodell against Middlemass, British people in hot weather against Ladybird Brackets Greengrass, the aphid against Pine Leaves and Open the Box Tosis against Laptop Dog. And joined as always by Mr. Pippington Beard, the boilerous fiend of Las Vegas. How, how are you, Pip? I'm sterling, you know, keeping my head above water. How's that boiler? It's uh, it's fixed. It wasn't actually broken when the guy came round, just to prove me a liar. Oh, well. Hopefully he's still charged you for it. Rebelli- rebellious boiler, yeah! And over the Lord Sage Temple, dreaming of amniotic reverberations. How are you, Ezra? I'm fine, yeah. I'm saving up for a holiday to Las Vegas. By the place. I used to work in a shampoo factory there. The Pemberton Walker. Bean Peeper. Hello. Uh, yeah, I've had a haircut this week. So. Very nice. Very nice. So you see. Or oxygen into my brain. Good, good. And Tim Three, a.k.a. the DJ formerly known as Jay Peel, uh, carnal malefactor, <laughs> condemned for allowing his appetite to sway his reason, his soul buffeted back and forth by terrible winds. And me, Tree Beards, the cat is out of the bag. So why don't we... Move on to what was promised last week. Now, so futures and pasts, that's where we bring something to the table that is influenced or an influence of the fall of Marquis Smith. Now, if you don't like this next person, I don't know why you could be a fall fan and not like them. You can fast forward five, 10, maybe 20 or 30 minutes <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and then get to the bit where we talk about fall songs. But Ezra, you're up. What do we have? All righty. Well, today we've got H.P. Lovecraft, Howard Phillips Lovecraft. Oh, yeah. He was an American fella. He lived from 1890 to 1937. And for much of that, he plied his trade as a pulp novelist, submitting short-ish horror stories to... Um, publications such as Weird Tales. He's become incredibly important, I think, within the whole of uh, Western culture in general, and his reverberations do indeed live on. So I'm going to start off with an anecdote, which is a kind of a dream slash vision that I had, which I feel kind of in some ways illustrates what Lovecraft brought to the table. So I was resting in my bed And I became aware of this thing that filled the field of my envision, the entire field of my vision. And it was some kind of entity, mostly composed of eyes, teeth, sinew, muscle. And it was concave, like a black hole, I suppose. And from the center of this deep gulf of weird muscle tissue and eyes and teeth, 
there was some kind of thing coming straight down to just above the crown of my head, somewhat like a mosquito's, uh, is it a proboscis? And I had the sense that whenever I shoveled off my mortal coil, this thing would suck up whatever there was of me, my soul, my essence, my dreams, my thoughts, and consume me. And that would be that. And there was absolutely fucking nothing at all I could do about it. And yeah, you know, I wonder if any of that would have happened if I hadn't read H.P. Lovecraft, because his stories are basically all about this idea that reality is far stranger and probably much worse than we can possibly begin to imagine. And that there are things outside our domain of reality that may prey on us or may just wipe us all out with a casual fart because they're so huge and unknowable and incredible that they've got much better things to do with their time than care about the likes of us. So yeah, he had a very powerful vision. And I think, you know, before him, most ghost stories, most horror stories were very much set in a kind of an anthropocentric universe. So the horrors, such as they were, were in some ways recognizably human. But Lovecraft's horror is a horror of the cosmos, and it's told through gaps and collage. And he was a salty fella, and he had some very interesting ideas and some very unpleasant ideas. I'm just going to read a short review of one of his short stories, which is called The Street. The soul of this street is unaccountably vile. The street feels good when white people live there, but feels bad when immigrants move in. It's xenophobia masquerading as a tale of the strange. Lovecraft openly pines for an Anglo-Saxon America when Caucasians took up arms against people of other countries and cultures instead of living alongside them as neighbours. The final section of the story fearmongers against communism in the hysterical pitch of McCarthy. Besides that, the repeated use of the phrase swarthy and sinister is Lovecraft at his worst. The story ends with the sentient street crushing all of the immigrants who live there. It's a repugnant white nationalist fantasy. I uh, I listened to a lot of love, well, almost all of his stories a few years ago, and yeah, so the stuff like uh, Shadow of Rinsmouth or whatever, it's kind of there. This um, it's in there, but the street was the one that stuck out. It like it was a it was like a BMP pamphlet essentially. It's <laughs> uh, pretty grim. Uh, yeah, and you know, I've not had the pleasure of reading that, and I don't think I'm going to be running to the library to track it down either. And so, yeah, even for his time, Lovecraft had some pretty unpleasant ideas about people who were Anglo-Saxon, women, uh, politics, all kinds of things. And, you know, I really feel like this is a big part of what also charges his stories, because I think it's essentially fear of the self, fear of humanity, fear of your own biological nature, uh, fear of other people. I think all of that plays into an enormous fracturing where it gets blown up into this kind of incredibly, well, impossible to describe other. I, I think it's a kind of fear of the failure of language, and it's a fear that led him to probe its limits. And so, of course, he's famous for his descriptions, which is possibly his greatest thing. 
So let's hear some portions and properties. The abysses were by no means vacant, being crowded with indescribably angled masses of alien-hued substance, some of which appeared to be organic, while others seemed inorganic. A few of the organic objects tended to awake vague memories in the back of his mind, though he could form no conscious idea of what they mockingly resembled or suggested. In the later dreams, he began to distinguish separate categories, into which the organic objects appeared to be divided, and which seemed to involve in each case a radically different species of conduct pattern and basic motivation of these categories, one seemed to him to include objects slightly less illogical and irrelevant in their motions than the members of the other categories. All the objects, organic and inorganic alike, were totally beyond description or even comprehension. Gilman sometimes compared the inorganic masses to prisms, labyrinths, clusters of cubes and planes, encyclopean buildings, and the organic things struck him variously as groups of bubbles, octopi, centipedes, living Hindu idols, and intricate arabesques roused into a kind of ophidian animation. Everything he saw was unspeakably menacing and horrible, and whenever one of the organic entities appeared by its motions to be noticing him, he felt a stark, hideous fright which generally jolted him awake. Of how the organic entities moved, he could tell no more than of how he moved himself. In time, he observed a further mystery, the tendency of certain entities to appear suddenly out of empty space, or to disappear totally with equal suddenness. The shrieking, roaring confusion of sound which permeated the abysses was past all analysis as to pitch, timbre, or rhythm, but seemed to be synchronous with vague visual changes in all the indefinite objects, organic and inorganic alike. So that's wonderful, isn't it? I mean, you know, what was it? Planes of planes and cubes, labyrinths. Fantastic. Well, it's, fantastic. It's Lovecraft bingo, isn't it? Cyclopean, non-Euclidean, um, insectoid. Let me bring Phil Rigby into this. He's been sitting there uh, mulling over Lovecraft. What's your take on, on HP and um, his sauce? Yeah, I <laughs> I like the fruity sauce. Um, I agree with everything that Ezra said, really. It's, you, you, you do have to take uh, the good with the bad, really, when, you, when you're reading Lovecraft. I, I love the start of that story. I think that's a really good story to pick the dreams of the witch folks. I think it, it it highlights a lot of the themes that he plays with and the way that he uses um, some of the ideas of like modern art and stuff like cubism and things like that to try and create a sense of difference and weirdness that is that is quite uncomfortable to read about. I think just to, just to add a few things to what Ezra was saying, he his views did change as he got older. Um, when he got married, he moved to New York, he married a Jewish woman. His, his views towards the end of his life were, were a more sort of mild form of socialism, really, rather than that uppity conservatism that he was brought up in. And he had a, he had a very, very odd childhood, odd in as much as his, his father was uh, had really serious mental health problems. And I think his, his mother was incredibly overprotective of him as well so he was he was a bit positive when he was he was growing up but yeah it doesn't take away any of that stuff that you said about some of the really obnoxious things that, that is in his stuff once you get past that purple prose which you either love or hate about him i think then you you can start to see why he would be attracted to somebody like murky smith who who we've you know, we've talked loads of times about him being an outsider looking in and this this idea of seeing the, the very odd and the very strange in the way the world works and also the, the things that live between the cracks, which is uh, um, something that, that Lovecraft kind of obsesses about. But I, I think whilst there are certainly problematic bits of his text, it's also interesting that he's 
he's used fairly regularly by leftist commentators, you know, like Mark Fisher a bit, he's, uses him um, to describe some of his ideas and China Mierville and um, also S.T. Joshi, who's who's probably the world leading expert on, on Lovecraft. Not not been an apologist for some of that stuff, but I think puts it into a, into a historical context, which is quite interesting. Um, and I, I think the the most recent thing that you encouraged me to read, that Providence, Ezra, which I finished reading actually the other day, um, is is really great for that in terms of exposing what the problems are, but also highlighting what the amazing bits are in terms of that cosmic dread that he he's so apt to describing. And it, it, there's really nobody like him beforehand. If anybody's interested in exploring kind of weird literature further, there's an amazing essay that he wrote about supernatural horror in literature, which is is just exceptional in terms of the breadth of history that he covers in terms of literature. I, I love his output, although he, he possibly wasn't the most pleasant person to be around. Oh, and the essay makes the point that he didn't think he was coming out of nowhere. He was coming from a very rich heritage of Gothic literature, but, but he clearly was coming at it from a very different angle than everybody else. And if you look at the um, Smith's stuff specifically, J. Temperance, Spectre versus Rector, that kind of cosmic dread, that weirdness between the crap. I want to see what Alistair thinks of H.P. Lovecraft. Are you a fan? Um, I'm kind of like in the middle on it, really. Like, and I, I know how influential Lovecraft is. Uh, you can clearly see that with literature and music, being a claustrophobic feel in sort of like Rare Bradbury stuff, which has probably come from there. And the same goes for like Clive Barker, like with, with some of the language that he uses, kind of like, yeah, it's, it's all right, isn't it? You know? <laughs> it? It's good stuff. And I think once we balance it up with the M.R. James, you get a round view of Smith's kind of big influences in terms of that side of things. Ezra, you Machen. He was part of the society. We'll come to him. I don't know. Don't I to say his name. He's Welsh. Was he Welsh? Yeah, he was Welsh. I believe he was, yeah. So, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. The list can go on. Phil, you're you're, uh, very knowledgeable in this area. If you want to find him... I only mention him because that's in Lovecraft's essay. He talks about the four masters and it's Lord Dunsany is is one of them. But it's also Algernon Blackwood, Macken and then um, M.R. James. Those are the four that he says, you know, nobody comes close to them really in terms of horror. Of course, what we need to do next is we need to uh, connect Lovecraft to the fall a bit more thoroughly and I would say, you know, the way that the fall use fractured texts, the gaps in the lyrics, the gaps in the knowledge, it all references Lovecraft, the Elder Ones, and they also refer to his writing style where, you know, stories would be told through journal entries, letters, scraps of information. Uh, to be cobbled together to to get to some horrific truth. Whereas Lovecraft is terrified at his own conclusions on the state of reality, it seems to me that MES and the fall revel in it. So here we're going to hear Marquis Smith reading a Christmas story for the BBC, which would be arguably one of Lovecraft's very best, The Colour Out of Space. In his uh, ten-acre pasture across Chapman's Brook, Winter came early, was very cold. In February, the McGregor boys from Meadow Hell were out shooting woodchucks not far from the garden place and bagged a very peculiar specimen. The proportions of its body seemed slightly altered in a queer way, impossible to describe. Its face had taken on an expression which no one had ever saw in a woodchuck before. 
The boys were genuinely frightened and threw the thing away at once so that only their grotesque tales of it reached the people of the countryside. In May the insects came. Nahum's place became a nightmare of buzzing and crawling. Most of the creatures seemed not quite usual in their aspects and motions. Their nocturnal habits contradicted all former experience. The gardeners took to watching at night. Watching... I just love the way he says specimen there. <laughs> it's a beautiful reading. We listened to a little bit of our Christmas special, but um, what a choice. What a choice of reader. What a choice of book. <laughs> Indeed. And so, yeah, I mean, just to finish finish off my spiel here, Lovecraft puts his characters outside of or ignorant to the true horrors of reality. I feel like the fall kind of kitchen synthesize us back into it as those horrors. So I just want to finish off with uh, a quote from Mark Sinker's essay, Cardinal R. Totali's Scrapbook. When we gaze on those tendrilled, contorting, glow-color figures prancing on grotesque, we half think, half pleased, that's how others are seeing us. These three writers, which would be Lovecraft, James and Macken, that MES so admires, have all worked a species of blasted outsider into their respective story tropes, yet none imagined or depicted this species with the rich variation and detail and shifting, fractured perspective that Smith and his team achieve, nor with the half-derisive, half-sympathetic identification. This pullulating mass in Fallworld is an individuated multiplicity, a jellied prole mass that manifests as many spectres walking, seen yet unseen, in a multiform world already made up only of us, alcoholics as elves, pensioners as cackling demons, our nightmares as our neighbours. A quote, a joke, a peculiar but naggingly well-wrought line in the murk of a song starts morphing into derision. Except, who's manifesting here? And how? Who's satirising who? And how deliberately badly? Is this fibbing or description or warning? Or is the slant-wise greeting of a slouching phantom here at last? Or the middle mass. Mm. Well, thank you for that, Ezra. It was a, a, a jaunt. As we said, it could have gone for many more hours. But um, let us know, listeners, dear listeners, if you want us to dig deeper and deeper into these uh, areas. But let's press on. Up first tonight, we have Hotel Blodel. Can you queue her up? If you don't mind, Philip. Hotel Bloedel. Philip, you're up first. What do you make of this little ditty? Okay. So, you know what? I've 
I've listened to this probably more than any other song this week because I know you lot were all gushing about it, but it just seems so strangely amateurish to me, this this song. And I, I know it's it's based off something that Bricks had done before she came to the fall, isn't it? For me, it's it's a bit on the dreary side. It never it never quite picks itself up. It, it just sort of kind of limps along a little bit. But when when Mez joins in, because he, he does like a bit of a kind of duetty talky thing, doesn't he? It doesn't quite work for me. I, I think if it was one or the other, I would probably be a bit more sympathetic to it as a record. But um, I, I don't really like the way that it comes together. I find the guitar sound quite annoying to listen to. It's it's not recorded very well, and it's really exaggerated because the drums and the bass seem to be recorded perfectly well, and there's the sound differential between them. I, I, I don't like the dynamic that they get going. The, the noise that keeps the rrr, rrr, and keeps coming in, I'm not sure it adds anything really to it. But the one thing that I really do like is the lyrics. I think Bricks' lyrics in it are, are really exceptionally good. But um, unfortunately, it's uh, I'm a music first kind of guy. And because of that, um, it kind of suffers for me, really. So it was only in the very, I, I read the lyrics last um, when it comes to these things. And whilst I was impressed with that, the, the music had already made its effect on me. And um, yeah, it was, it struggled for me, this. I did try and like it, but I just couldn't get there. You did your best. That's all we can ask, really, isn't it? Although everything you described as bad seems, those are all, those are all good in my book. So I think, um, not really sure how this music thing works. Alistair, what did you make of Hotel Bloodell? Um, I think on the perverted, it, it sits really well. It breaks the LP up, you know, it gives it a bit of breathing space. Um, and again, it's it's one that I used to trudge around Pemberton to uh, many years ago, perverted on the headphones. And yeah, no, I never minded it. The noise bit that, that fills on about is violin, which I think might be uh, Mr. Smith trying to impress uh, Bricks. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, I, th- I think you made a reference to, to this early on in the in the cast. Like it's um, it's got something to do with um, a hotel that they stayed in next to a slaughterhouse. Yeah, I can kind of see where Phil's coming from because like Bricks isn't the best singer in the world, but you know I don't mind that. I don't know why Mariah Carey whining over the top of it or something like that. I, I agree with Phil again. The mix is a bit cack uh, because if you listen, to, try and pick the bass out. Uh, that's actually really fucking good. And you know when Smith comes in at the end doing his little talky bit. Bit like uh, Chuck D on the cool thing by Sonic Youth. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that was that was okay. I liked it. It's, I think it's, it's a good one. Um, Phil, you're wrong. <laughs> you're lying as well. I've seen all your Mariah Carey albums. Ezra, what did you make of Hotel Bloodle? Yeah, it's interesting. When I was listening to Perverted by Language, uh, when we were covering that in the kind of fall retrospective episode. I can remember, it. I think it was this track, thinking, this is so crap, no one can possibly think Perverted by Language is the best Fall album because it's got this song on it. But somehow, listening to it over the past week, I've really become quite fond of it. And it, it seems to me that there's maybe some kind of, it's some kind of lodestone of like indie guitar miserableism. I don't know if those chords had been used before in a song in that way, but it sounds reminiscent of so much that's come after it, that's for sure. Uh, and yeah, you know, it, it's got a really romantic, grey <laughs> miserableism to it, which I quite liked. And the words are fucking great. I'll read some. Our words return in patterns, our minds encapsulating time. Gregoror, satiated walking through capital, stumbles on 2,000 dead Thai monks, 
in SS uniforms outside Nuremberg, a long way south to a reasonable smell of death, which is grim and fantastic, and apparently is referring to this batshit notion that the Nazis had Thai monks meditating for them to control the weather to fuck the Aldis over. Uh, yeah, I wrote those exact same lyrics then. They are great. It's, um, and half of those are, are Smiths, and, but uh, I'm with you, Phil Briggs's lyrics on this. There was some debate back and forth on, on the annotated fall as to how much Smith had pitched in. It seems to be mostly coming from Briggs, which it just seems like a, a chance lost for me because I love this. I think a strangely amateurous is exactly what I want and uh, badly mixed guitar, <laughs> guitars and shambling chords and kind of uh, <laughs> twee vocals. It sent me off down a real, a proper like rabbit hole the other day, like trying to just get something that sounded like it because it, like what you're saying, Ezra, is like, yeah, it sounds like so many other things, but I couldn't really find many things that sounded that much like it. I went into K-Record stuff and down to Sarah and um, Heavenly and Cherry Red and all that stuff. And there's so much great stuff in there. Um, and it led more to things like The Smiths than it did to The Fall, which is why it sticks out like a sore thumb. There's nothing else like it in the catalogue. Wondered whether it, he'd actually got a demo of, of her old band playing it as well, because I was like, is this still <laughs> like Scanlon? And, and Hanley like doing this yeah I just think they could just turn their hand to this and I wish um, I actually sent a tweet saying to, to Bricks I wish we had two or three of these on on every fall album uh, no response but you know <laughs> <laughs> I do love the weird story in the background as well of the idea of them being like strange things happening in the hotel room and I, there's a couple of different versions I've read through the, the years but basically there's some really mysterious ones where kind of they're like lighting candles and kind of do like trying to exercise the kind of spirits in their room uh, and then they wake up in the morning and realize it's right next to an abattoir the violin yeah apparently is smith but i don't know if he could play in time and make that noise repeatedly i think he did the bit at the end probably where it's like screeching and and, and that's got a bit of an abattoir sound i think it's great i think it's a, a wonderful song it is up against something huge though it Love just reminds me of an anecdote as well about when uh, you know in psycho the shower scene violin stabs in it that yeah, was yeah. to recreate the sound of pigs getting slaughtered in an abattoir okay. that was the inspiration for that yeah. so I wondered, yeah, maybe maybe if that's where he he was going with that, but it's it's got something really really sweet and and just such an outlier in a band like the Fall with so many outliers. This is just another path they could have Bingo! taken. Exactly, the exception proves the rule. What does Timothy think of this? Hotel Bordel, creepy and hesitant, understated and effective. Not a sound I would associate with the Fall usually, but it works for me. I love the violin question mark punctuations and marks additions. A real shame it's against the heavy hitters so soon. I'd take this over anything else on this week's playlist. That's not how it goes, is it? But if it were to go out, there'd be a second chance uh, bag coming up in just a, a few mere fall weeks. But it is up against middle mass off slates. Ooh la la. Give us a bit of that, Philip. <laughs>
Evil is not in the extremes. Ezra, what do you make of Middleness? It's just unbelievable. It's great. It's fantastic. I love it when the sound comes in from the keyboards and you feel like you're being run over by a waste management disposal unit that's reversing over your fragile bones. And yeah, you know, the first lyrics which you referred to, the evil is not in extremes, it's in the aftermath, the middle mass after the fact, vulturous in the aftermath. It's so interesting that Mark Riley seems to think this is about him. I've always wondered because if it was about him, it doesn't sound that bad. (laughs) But maybe it is about him and there's, you know, there's a lot of debate on this. I suppose it could be an incantory precog curse banishing Mark Riley to the inner rings of mediocrity was what came up in my mind whilst I was listening to it. But whatever it's about, it's fucking brilliant. It's fucking brilliant. And it just goes from pure evil to jauntily evil and yet maintains this feeling of joy all the way through. I dug up this really nice quote from uh, Mark Smith. What really annoys me is that people can't get into their head that there isn't any threat from the left or the right. The threat is some kind of standardized, horrible society run by a bunch of fucking idiots. And here we are. <laughs> it's, a, it's post-blur. But yeah, this is, this is a song that I'll probably never tire of. That's high praise indeed, but what does Alistair think? It's bloody marvellous. Um, it's like very kind of wrong sounding. And I think if you played it to most people, they'd just say, oh, what a cack. Uh, but at the end of the day, they just don't get it, do they? Nice references to Tim Pan Alley and Whispering Bob in there. And as Ezra sort of mentioned, the keyboard sound very kind of, yeah, a bit velvety again. But it comes in a little bit late after the guitar. So it's kind of like, you know, the build up a little bit of a, of a momentum to it and it gives it a different dynamic like the drums on it are quite interesting as well because you've got like that straight snare rhythm but if you listen to the cymbals they're doing some like really interesting patterns there that, that's uh, again just gives it that little bit of a groove that's, that's that little bit different uh, quite like the uh, multi-layered vocals towards the end and uh, yeah that, that jaunty guitar bridge thing in there it just goes into some like really nice a bit like kids TV music as a uh, film uh, picks up on I don't know but yeah it is absolutely fantastic but uh, Slates is very difficult to, to argue against anything on there nah for the, like a, for a six song EP unbelievable I know I know it gets a lot of credit but it's a it's a great set of songs that wonky breakdown I played stuff by the Yummy Fur the other week and that's exactly what I'm talking about well when I why I love Yummy Fur is that kind of wonky detuned guitar but it just is so catchy and so right as well it's like the bass and guitar are playing weird like different chord progressions and and different keys at the same time and things coming in just like (laughs) like really strange times it's like if they composed that if they decided how all that was happening that's pretty magical but it feels like it's all a little bit intuitive yeah totally menacing and feels like way longer than three and a half minutes i was like i always thought it was like the one at a six seven minute which is, which makes sense it could easily go on for that but it's nice he's really short insistent obnoxious keys like you were saying ezra but yeah if he's having a go with somebody the boy is like a tape blue fiasco soft mitts he's the last domain of a very very black room brain he learned a word today the word is misanthropy 
It's like, all right, fair enough. But you, you've you've taken people down a lot, a lot uh, stronger than that. Um, it is hard to know what it's about. It's he it kind of he talks about this. Evil's not an extreme, but he de- he doesn't seem to go into that theme that that much, other than a few lyrics. I think um, would have liked to hear Smith's take a little bit more. I mean, he gives it as in other songs as well. His disdain for uh, bureaucratic culture and um, how it's the it's the middle classes that we need to be wary of, not the lad down the street but yes uh, and I always thought middle March was a, a kind of reference but again I'm not sure if if there's anything specific there Phil what does this one do for you I, I thought the reference was to like quarter mass as in like quarter mass then middle mass um, and I'm sure I've read that somewhere but I, and I thought it was in that Mark Fisher book The Weird and the Eerie but I, I had a re-look at it last night and I, I couldn't find any reference to it as I, I reread the lyrics a few times trying to put my finger on what exactly it was he was trying to say on it I, I do find it a bit difficult the only conclusion that I came to was that sort of weariness of bourgeois middle way kind of boringness rather than where the excitement is at the extremes I must admit though I was just utterly mesmerised by the music uh, first two thirds of the song where they get that deranged dissonant umpire thing going on just reminded me of the old emergency sirens that you used to hear in the UK the Nino noise it's that tempo isn't Nino Nino um, which you don't really hear much nowadays because they've, they've changed all the siren noises haven't they but it's all the way from that initial blast, the sort of wheezing noises. Like you, I was listening to what the guitars were doing and it does become more complicated as it goes on. They seem to keep layering dissonance over dissonance as, they, as they're going with it. And then I wrote down Yummy Fur as well because that's obviously <laughs> that, that sound in the last half where they do the handbrake turn and it goes into like the, the kids do, 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 like, uh, yeah, like I always reference it. It's like that is purely where Yummy Fur have ripped their stuff style from isn't it and and no bad thing about that at all and I think it really works I said I can't remember what song it was but we did one last week where I said it had the worst break I've I've ever heard in a fall tune Um, just waiting yes just waiting yeah and I I think it's a similar aesthetic move that they do in this song but here it's just effortlessly brilliant in in what they do whereas in that it just falls flat on it I know you tried to defend it Al but I felt it just fell flat on its first you can you can gush all day about slates this is this this is another example of why that EP is just so fucking amazing. Yeah. How about Timmy? Well, let's have a look and see what he said. He's put superb. Every song on Slates is a world of its own, and this is no exception. Densely woven and impeccably phrased amidst the ramshackle exterior, the vocal asides within create a sort of conspiratorial feeling. As for the lyrics, I really couldn't say anything about the whole Mark Riley thing and can't help but think it's a bit overblown. Fair enough, indeed. Well, that brings us to our first uh, vote of the evening. It's Hotel Bloodell up against Middle Mass. Middle Mass, by the way, or Middle Mass is uh, German for uh, mediocrity. But uh, who knows whether that's relevant. Which way are you going on this one, Ezra? Are you going Bloedel or Middle Mass? Boys like a tape loop. Aye, aye. Philip? Middle of the Mass, please. Alistair? Cat uh, Middle Mass. I predicted as much. Tim? Middle Mass. I, and I am going for Hotel Bloodell, but it was very, very close. It's um, it's like apples and oranges. I just couldn't, I just couldn't pick between the two. Love them both, but uh, I did fear that it might be a four-one. But uh, middle mass goes through, and that brings us to the British people in hot weather from the extricate era. 
British people in hot weather. British people in hot weather. British people in hot weather. Filled envelopes and send them to you. On train ride, read Mark's tracks. Play Walkman's lap behind you. You play those three songs to anyone, there's no way they're saying Floridell, Middlemass and British people in hot weather are the same band. It just it makes no sense. And it's all within like eight years of each other or whatever. It's like, maybe not. Um, Al, you're up first. British people in that damn hot weather. I don't, I don't do very well in hot weather, to tell the truth. Uh, I'm a Britisher. It's too hot, isn't it? It's, it's too hot. It's too hot, if anything. Uh, some funny lyrics. In there. It sounds like he's kind of like doing the observational thing, you know, sat around hot airport patch a lounge watching the people around him like you know but yeah I really like the way it started off really sounded like something off uh, movement by New Order when I say really sounds like it bloody exactly the same and uh, maybe if they'd uh, stuck with that they could have turned out a, a fairly decent song like but uh, it, it kind of gets worse uh, once the keyboard comes in <laughs> but yeah it's fairly standard fodder like but I've heard worse I beg to differ Alistair well, you, you beg all you like those synth horns no one else is getting away with that they're getting away with it in my book obviously i've heard the song a bunch of times before but when you listen to it like fresh and you just listen to that first bit with the guitar and drums yeah it's okay it's nice i can see where they're going it's got that neuro thing that makes it is the synthy horns that's what elevates it and then smith coming in with his satire on the train ride read mark's tracts play walkman loud behind you demonstrate on oxford street about what the hell they couldn't tell you british people in hot weather hard to hard with your sister people in shorts drunk before you beached whale in whopping his armpits her are sprouting serpentine r serpentine (laughs) (laughs) bad dog's an englishman in it philip what do you make of it (laughs) you know the first time i I put it on in the car i had exactly the same reaction as all and then by about the fourth or fifth time i listened to it i fucking loved it i thought it was brilliant uh, you're totally right it's those it's stupid fucking synth brass noises which just it works it absolutely works when in the, the actual construction of the song it feels a bit patchwork it feels like it's three different ideas that have kind of been thrown together and, and sometimes that really doesn't work <laughs> I, th- I really think it works in this it's wormed its way into my heart and I think this is fucking brilliant do they know they can get cancer designer tramp goes grrr <laughs> see I've never heard him go before in this song I think it's a new Smith noise that it's a new sound, I have heard him it? do it others because I've, I've mentioned the, the role in ours before because he expected you to say ass to me but it's, it's one of those things that I can't do I cannot make that noise he does a good job have a go try <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't do it, can you? No. Practicing. Ezra, B P I H W. What do those words mean to you? Yeah, this is smashing. I loved it from the moment those synths came in. Just perfect. I, I don't think any band has really understood exactly what the horn sounds on a synthesizer are for in the same way or as effectively as the fall. They've made so many fall songs. It's great. Like the snark is just beautiful. The uh, line, people in shorts drunk before you. I've been thinking about it for ages and I'm trying to decide if that means people in shorts drunk 
in front of me, before me, in terms of the location? Or does it mean that the people in shorts were out on the beach earlier and started drinking earlier and got drunk before me? I'm tempted towards the latter interpretation, which would make sense. But in order to get drunk before Marquis Smith got drunk, probably have to start pretty early, I think, on most days. Stay up all Uh, night? Yeah. (laughs) And the line, do they know they can get cancer? Fucking hilarious. Yeah, this is nothing but a treat, this song. Well, let me ask you, Phil, a while back you put me on the spot for my best Marsha Schofield song. Who do you think plays those synth horns? Is this, is this one, of, one of her era? I must admit, I'm not the biggest Marsha Schofield fan in the world. She's the keyboard player next to Kate, and the, this yeah, is the era. Yeah. yeah, yeah, this is the era. So her and her and Martin Brammer apparently got together and, and started having some hanky-panky on this tour and Smith sacked them both. Brammer just turned up for the one album, right? Anyway. <laughs> Australians in Europe, British people in hot weather. I always wondered whether there was a connection. Maybe there's not. Tim won't like those synth horns, really. What's he think? It's difficult to read, isn't he, in fairness? At times, at times. British people with sprouting arm hers. That synth sound is absolutely revolting. <laughs> <laughs> It sounds like an early 90s quiz show. It's probably right there, actually. Lyrically funny, though, and spirited with some great bass pulses, and I can't help but pop along. Not strong by any means, but plenty to enjoy. Aye, aye. Well, I'm glad we all enjoyed it. It is up against Ladybird Greengrass off uh, the infotainment scan. To you first, green grass, ladybird, bracket. What do you make of it? I thought it was really charming. This I, I liked it the first time that I heard it, and then it, it just kind of grew even more on me. So it's another one of those where the changes in it don't feel particularly organic, but I think it works as a whole. The chorus of the song, I'm, I'm reading quite a bit of William Blake at the moment, and it really reminded me of sort of Blakeian kind of lyrics that switch from kind of <laughs> talking about an outdoor festival to 
this almost psychedelic trippy following a ladybird to, to fly where it's going and then I think musically it's interesting although the, the chorus itself it's another one of those riffs that a lot of guitarists use I think it's one of those quite sort of standard arpeggiated chord riffy type things that's been used a lot but they use it really well and they, it's, it doesn't sound cheesy it's, it sounds quite inventive over Donna so this is another one that I really not only warmed to but I, I went from liking to, to really enjoying it and I think it's great sweet sweet Alistair what's this one do for you alright I don't like the production it's probably one of the better ones on the LP I don't like the, the LP tremendously the best riff reminds me a bit of uh, systematic abuse in a way couldn't get that out of my head. I, I think it's one of those that if bricks had been on it, it could have been a lot better. But yeah, it's, it's like I said, one of the better ones off that LP, but I still prefer the Peel Session version. Peel Session version is good. Yeah, I'll give you the systematic abuse thing. The first half of that bass line does the same thing, doesn't it? But then a little twist, a little bit more variation just uh, stops it from falling down that particular hole. Ezra, what about this one for you? Ladybird. Well, it's interesting. We seem to be getting quite emo uh, with today's selection with this. Pine Leaves, which we've got still to come, and Hotel Blodel. I think all three of these would be going on my romantic map full compilation. Yeah, this was really lovely, I thought. Like, it, it's got some weird lyrics which seem to be in places about not staying too long in one place or the dangers of settling down because your home life is likely to be torn apart by civil war or something. Uh, the lyric I wrote down here was, see the epaulette, death to let, small change attached. I ripped the magazine open. It brought me round. Grass green was clear in the boundary zone. Grass faded into wimpy brick in the ground. And so, like, wimpy apparently were a company that built a lot of cheap post-World War II housing in uh, the UK. And so it kind of makes me wonder if it's about somebody escaping their war-torn country to go and live in a wimpy country. Sorry, a wimpy building in a wimpy country. But who knows? But it was beautiful. And yeah, I also got the kind of reverberations of Blake that uh, Phil was describing. I couldn't really put uh, my finger on anything by Blake, which kind of brings that into my mind, but there's just something there. So yeah, good, interesting song, bit crap production-wise. I think the very clean, quite light production does work on some songs. I don't think it works on this one. I think with a bit of, uh, a little bit of grime thrown in there, it would have been a, be a better tune. And, and when you listen to it live there's a few live versions it, it does work it does hang together a little better he's describing sitting watching this concert and then he's focus changes the perspective of the insect and this idea of the insect's home being destroyed and then turning that into a metaphor for a bigger kind of human tragedy which doesn't quite he doesn't quite explain he doesn't quite get into it there's just enough and and it's this mystical kind of uh, the, the the nature elements in it kind of i think it is danny on the annotated fall who quotes the german version of the kids song ladybird ladybird 
fly, you know, fly away. The one about um, their homes being destroyed is a ladybird fly. Your father is at war. Your mother is in Pomerania and Pomerania is burnt down, which is, he specifically talks about Pomerania, um, with part of Poland, right? So it's another direct reference to the war. It is just this switching of ideas. I'd never got that before. I'd listened to this song a lot. I had Infotainment Scam. I only had one C, one false CD for a while. And I think I listened to Infotainment Scam over and over again, which is why I got a bit of a soft spot for it. I never really listened to lyrics before. It's given me a new a new take on it. Quick quiz question for you. What other Paul songs can you think of that specifically mentioned insects? Bugdare. <laughs> Bugdare with his midges, of course. Aphid. Aphid, which we're coming to soon. Four and a half inch. It does uh, mention midges it's as well. Either kind or it's called it did the other day. Yeah, kind of, but we've got cyber insect as well. And um, eat yourself fitter. Mild, extra car, is it? Spot oh. Victorian child or did Joe show on one of that? There's lots anyway, that's the point. But it's time to take a vote once we've heard what Timmy Tim Tim thinks of Ladybird. He has scribbled, love the backwards intro thing, great bass line and garage guitar and some superb vocal work from Mez. The album is poppy fall done right in my opinion and this is a good example of how a more accessible fall could have worked more long term in the 90s not heard this in a while thoroughly enjoyed it sweet so it's a, it's a bit of a tough show down here which way are you going Ezra British people in hot weather or ladybird it is a tough one but British people in hot weather and it's probably because of the time it was recorded doesn't refer to twerking so I'm going to vote for ladybird let's see Philip uh God, yeah, this is hard. I think we're going to go with Ladybird. I did not think it would get so much love. Alistair? Well, despite the uh, awful, heavily gated drum sound, they'll go with Ladybird. Indeed. And Timothy? He's a Ladybird man. Oof. And, uh, or Ladybug for those across the Atlantic exactly for our American friends uh, it, it's another 4-1 I'm going for British people in hot weather and for the second time this evening I'm on the wrong end of history but uh, Ladybird goes through that brings us next to the aphid of Cerebral Caustic 1995 <laughs> Nice. Alistair, the aphid. Yeah, I just wrote lots of stuff about insects on it and we just covered that anyway. So, um, Give us some more. Yeah. <laughs> Beefed, I thought. Um, <laughs> it's all right, you know. I think it's, it's heavily on the uh, vocals and drums. You know, you could have probably done with a bit more guitar and bass. Fairly standard progression, but yeah, it's got a nice beat to it. It has got a nice beat to it. What does Ezra mm. think? Yeah, this is smashing. It's really smashing. I mean, yeah, the production, I also feel kind of lets it down. It could be twice as gnarly, I think. But you've got to love any song which is inspired by... Uh, a Scanner Darkly by Philip K. Dick, 
which this most certainly is. And with lyrics like uh, the aphid, bend down, scratch around carpet for insects, get hook clamp, stand up gel frame, put insects in a jar. So you can imagine your neighborhood speed addict or alcoholic imagining they're on a reality TV show where they have to perform a dance and collect invisible insects and put them in a jar. And what's not to like about that? Indeed, what is not to like about that? Nout is not to like about that. Funky, funky. Everybody clap your hands. Clap, 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 clap your hands. To the left. Take it back now, y'all. One hop this time. So it was only when. So I thought this was an okay track. I've heard it again a bunch of times, right? And yeah, I, I agree with you, Al. It could have a bit more teeth, a bit more snarl about it. It's a pretty tepid, garagey rock sound. But once I realised that he was doing like a dance, like the twist or something, it's like, that's a genius move. Sure, it's just a list of things that, yeah, he probably did get from, from the scanner darkly. But the way he presents it, like a cha-cha slide. It's this century's cha-cha slide. Um, and uh, <laughs> I love it. I love the Agadu. I love the chicken song by Spitting Image. And I love this song. But everything sounds buried like a shit production. It's like everything is low in the mix. Okay, the vocals are the front and center. Everything else? How can everything be low in the mix? How is that possible? <laughs> Brendan, have you ever heard the B-sides to the chicken song? About the South Africans? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have. <laughs> we started off where problematic uh, author, we managed to get away with it. Let's not blow it now. <laughs> um, Phil, what do you think of uh, the aphid? Yeah, the first thing it reminded me of was the mummies because it's it's got that garagey kind of riffing about it, hasn't it? And then the more that I listened to it, I thought it doesn't actually remind me of the mummies. This it reminds me of the version of the mummy. I think that's that's kind of what it's it's channeling, but it's it's just nowhere near as as good as that. I, I picked up on the it's the latest dance kind of vibe that he gets going with it. Yeah, I used to um, co-DJ a funk night in London and one of our rules was no 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 do the dance records anything with the title of do the funky chicken or do the strange horse or whatever it was like no you don't play those records I, as you love them I've got a bit of an aversion to them so that was it marked it down for me that it's a bit all fuzz but not good fuzz this and I, it started to bore me quite quickly I think the, the 40 seconds whatever that I've just played doesn't really do anything else apart from that it does that over and over again doesn't feel particularly inventive to me it's it feels a bit sort of half-assed got a um, great outro though it, the, the outro is good that's why i didn't pick up on the pkd ref I, I just thought it was some reference to somebody watched on telly like a david bellamy program or something like that and he, but yeah it needs to be doing something else for me, this tune. And whilst I'm sympathetic to your kind of, it, he's doing the aphid take, which is quite funny. I don't know. I, I couldn't listen to it more than a few times without getting aggravated by it. Really. Right foot, let's start. Left foot, let's start. Cha cha, real smooth. You're what does Tim? <laughs> what does Tim think? <laughs> 
It's poor. Instruction on how to collect aphids over a standard garage type thing. Probably one of the best things on cerebral caustic. Fun and pointless. I agree. It's probably the second best thing or the first best thing, depending on what day it is on cerebral, cerebral caustic. It is up against the only other good song on the album, sadly, which is Pine Leaves. That's just my opinion, though. So let's have a little bit of Pine Leaves. This time, cheesy synth horns probably provided by Dave Bush, not uh, Marsha. She was long gone by that point. Ezra, what do you make of Pine Leaves? We've had a few back and forths on this one this week. What do you think? Yeah, I'm mighty fond of this one. You know, it starts off with that acoustic guitar, which is another rarity in the full oeuvre, and um, a sample of a voice, which at first I thought was Margaret Thatcher. And I suppose it could be, but maybe it isn't. I'm not sure. But I've got to take my hats off to the people at the Annotated Fall for transcribing the lyrics here because I couldn't hear half of them at all. (laughs) But it's this strange mixture musically of a fairly kind of upbeat, cheesy synth chord and some very kind of melancholic guitar sound. And the lyrics are just fantastic. I'll read this part. I wish I could have seen you all. They lived thousand, the hills at dusk, because they knew all the horrible culturations and evocations, formulae from verdant green-yellow puddles. You sir, Purcell appears now in the form of an angel. It's now no good twice. So yeah, I wrote that it's haunted and gripping. Uh, this Purcell fella was apparently a famous English composer. And yeah, the imagery here is so odd. In Again, in the annotated fall, they mentioned that it was pine trees that surrounded the gas chambers at Auschwitz. So we seem to be getting more war stuff, like we've had crop up in Bloedel, Middlemass. Yeah, this weird kind of movement from like, well, it, it, it's got like themes of like British imagery and the dead of war and the concentration camps, but none of it really hangs together. But in some way, it's kind of beautiful, I think. May I, Alistair? Do you agree with Ezra's opinion on this? Um, yeah, I do to a certain extent, I certainly do. Yeah, you could get aphids in pine leaves, couldn't you? Uh, but yeah, it reminded me a bit of yeah, kind of Morricone sort of sound to it. The keyboard is interesting. That, that It starts off sort of like Morricone-esque and then like kicks into some sort of like, you know, zombie cannibal film soundtrack kind of keyboard, like something that you get from a Davio Agento or Lucci or Fulci film. Film. Quite like the vocals uh, in, you know, the little uh, backing vocal sample thing on it and uh, the guitar. But yeah, the, the, the sound of the keyboard is, is interesting. Slight pause. Philip, what about you? <laughs> 
I, I really like this. So to pick up on what Ezra noticed, the acoustic guitar front and centre right at the start with that sort of peal of bells almost kind of riff that it's playing is, is quite unusual to, to start off with. And then you've got this weird texturing that goes over the top, haven't you, with the, the mumbly Sean Ryder kind of vocal that Smith does over the top, like that wistful kind of singing, the juxtaposed return of the brass synth that, that comes over the top. I think it works really well I, as soon as I heard it I, I thought the, the texturing was really beautiful on this I, I didn't even attempt to work out what he was singing about but it's sort as of a, as an overall wall of sound and the whole thing was really beautiful and I, I, I like what they were doing with it I, you've, you've made me think about the annual Morricone thing though I'll really on the money that I'd not thought about it like that at all but you're quite right that's, that's probably a good reference point for this really um, my, my reference point for it was John of Arc I, I put in the bunker chat it, it really reminded me of some of the stuff that they get going with there's a number of albums where they've where victor's playing guitar on it and then there's kind of electro sound that they weave over the top of it yeah how memory works and a portable model those first two albums um a lot of that stuff on yeah but it's even the even the title they've got a penchant for quite punny dad jokey type names haven't they for the songs and the pine leaves obviously pine trees have needles they don't have leaves so to, to kind of describe it like that. I loved it right from the first moment to listen to it. I thought it was a great tune. Yeah, that kind of picked. I mean, obviously, it's, it's a very simple form of finger picking, but again, an outlier. I don't, it doesn't appear on almost any other fall song that I could think of. And then those incongruous horns that, yeah, they just worked. It just, it was a nice bed. It felt like it somehow between that acoustic and those that synth, it bypassed the shit production that like ruined the rest of Cerebral Caustic for me. And I think his his vocals remind me of Arab Strap, that kind of almost whispered. And it obviously came before that, but these very, very kind of um, very, very light whispered vocals that, again, doesn't use it a lot, but it really, really works. It's, it's beautiful. It's not a song uh, that was on my radar before. It had, I, whenever I listened to this album, it hadn't stuck, stuck out. And then, of course, when I started looking into the lyrics, and, and it does seem to be about something to do with prisoner of war camps. Annihilation, how does this end? They come from verdant Albion, and still they breathe. This corpor of leaden leaf folding out with ghost. These apes were once born fluid now. Ah, beautiful, sad and beautiful track. It reminded me of uh, I Come and Stand at Your Door track that um, <laughs> only I like. But um, it has a sadness to it, which is beautiful. What does Tim think? Let's take a vote. More terrible synth sounds with and some basic guitar picking, a recorded tape of something or other, and in the end, nothing of any consequence. So that... He doesn't like it quite as much as we do. There's no telling him. I know. Let's take a vote. Ezra? I believe Pine Leaves is of great consequence. Pine Leaves and all of its consequences. Uh, Philip? Aphid or pine leaves? all the way. Interesting. Uh, Alistair? Pine leaves. I'm going for pine leaves too, so I will not be on the end of another hiding. But it looks like it's going to be another 4-1. What does Tim think? Aphid 2, pine leaves 0. Yes, and so pine leaves goes through comfortably. Very nice, very nice indeed. And we are Just down... He's given more evidence as to why he's exactly where he is, isn't he? <laughs> exactly. He's crawling his way slowly through the rings of hell, but I don't think he's ever going to make it up back to Charlie or wherever he will eventually lay down to rest. Box Otosis up against Laptop Dog. Box Tosis off a real new fall LP. 
aka Country Under, formerly Country Under Clean. Jason and Four. <laughs> you are? 2004. <laughs> what? We're just about warming up, aren't we, Phil? What do you think about boxatitosis? Well, somebody opened that confounded box. This is very catchy, is the first thing that I would say. I've been singing it all week, throwing myself several times, humming away on, on my own, singing Open the Goddamn Box. It's pub rock done right. They're on the right side of it all. And as we've we've said several times, this was a, a band that could do pub rock really well. It's, uh, it's not going to embarrass anybody. Mez has got a really nice, wistful sound, and as well as his shouty Open the Goddamn Box line that is and then he'll say open the box again and then he'll say open the box again and then he'll say open the box again and he uh, he, he says it again and he and then he'll say open the box again he really plays with that sibilance of box and then he'll say open the box he repeats he? he repeats and then he'll say open the box again it's that line although it's have you noticed else. after he's doing that though he actually says it again uh, and I don't know if he says it at all because somebody else is clearly saying it it's not Mark Smith who's saying that line <laughs> So there's there's nothing particularly clever about this tune. It kind of just kind of just hits you over and over again with the with the same thing. And I did find about halfway through after I'd listened to it a couple of times of just thinking, this doesn't do anything else. I've lost the will to live. I hope he shouts that box line again. So, and as, as singable and hooky as that line is, I, I just wanted it to do something else. But it's very catchy. Fair enough. Ezra. Yeah, I've got to agree with Phil in some ways here. Like I, I, this song also kind of reminded me of Contraflow, and I feel like Contraflow's got a bit of the same issue. But here, I felt like it came off more so for me than Contraflow did. And you know, I like I like boxes within boxes within boxes within boxes, and he's opening all these boxes, and they've got imperial stuff in. And I love, I would love more imperial stuff in my boxes, I can tell you. And also, it's got the perfect, perfect lyric, I opened the box, it was orthodox. Which, you know, I mean, not many lyricists should really be allowed to get away with that. But because it's Mark, I'm just going to give him a pass again. Are you going to give him a pass on the voice he does during the breakdown? No, I'm, the, the the jury's out on that voice. Yeah, yeah <laughs> the bastardo yeah. voice. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Cancelled. <laughs> what do you guys think about Joe Rogan? <laughs> <laughs> I'll let it die. <laughs> 
Um, I was well perplexed. A great line. Al, were you well perplexed? Not too perplexed. Um, that's not a right song. I, I was wondering whether or not um, he'd seen that film Seven. I think there's the open the box thing at the end of it. I've never actually seen that film. We only know it from the uh, Adam and Joe uh, Toy Story piss Turk. But yeah, you never know. He might have seen that. Uh, but yeah, Country on the Clicks a bloody great LP. Can you get that on vinyl? Because I've never seen it yet. Yeah, I've got it on vinyl. Have you? I'm going to come around yours and steal it. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, it really reminds me of the Hives. Uh, but it was quite a lot of that kind of stuff going on at the, at the time. Uh, with the, the garagey sort of sound. Nice rhythm though, set to the guitar. Uh, I think that's something that keeps it interesting if you have added a, a different rhythm to the guitar it could have been very boring but yeah they did kind of pull it through with that one like but a uh, nice garage riff you got going on backing vocals work okay on it nice dynamics between drums bass and guitar yeah pleasant pleasant indeed I, I like the tinny drums I thought it was a, a bit straight a bit straight laced but it, it got some uh, nice momentum going forward garage I just mm. I can't get past that open the box <laughs> I can't I can't get past it why do I find it so annoying it really irritates me and um, so there's another version on um, the inter interim one the uh, EP Interplay yeah exactly and he doesn't have uh, I think Steve Milner is shouting the best player is shouting open box but I think the version on um, the EP has Smith saying it and it works a little bit better but but also it doesn't work as well and that's the annoying thing it's a good choice to have him shouting that but I don't like it I thought it might be a bit separate but I also thought it might be a bit deal or no deal doesn't that have a box opening because I know that was before or after this you know what well, well, I don't think Tim says no not the strongest thing on the record, but a fun stomp with a top-class vocal. From the soft-lipped verses to the deranged babbling at one point, it's magic. Good. I have to see we disagree on everything. He does it deliberately, you know. I know. And it's up against laptop, laptop dog. Am I saying that right? Laptop dog of Ursat's GB of 2011. When? Open 2011. Open the laptop dog. <laughs> <laughs> It's got this like beautiful shifting kind of gentle like music in the background. And Smith singing quite gently as well. Like Kieran Mellon the whole way through, oh, boom, 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 overcompensating a little bit. But he's usually seems quite, his drums are usually like in alignment with the track. These just stick out like a sofa. And I can only imagine Smith insisting on that all the way through because it's, there's no way you would have allowed him to play like just a proper four to the four beat over like these really like gentle kind of like like woozy keyboards and stuff. But the more I listened, and we were saying this today, the more I listened, the more it made sense. It's just another one of Smith's ridiculous ideas that 
<laughs> eventually batter their way into your head. Um, get their fucking brushes out, Kieran. I said, probably Mez made him do it. I'm sure he did, but I, I really like it. I really love the song. And then once I got into the lyrics, just like searches all the bins, his laptop. <laughs> it's just about a lot of his laptops have gone missing. And Smith is sitting there watching him looking through all the bins. And then he throws in like some stuff about Keith Richards and burning bins that seem to suggest that he's like, he's an addict. You're an addict. You've lost your laptop. Smith's there like blinds of speed and but cans of special. <laughs> it's like, you're a bloody addict. Um, someone said, it's like, what? Well, someone in the group has lost, lost their laptop with all his work, his photos, his whole life is on this thing, which Mark found incomprehensible <laughs> and then just took the piss out of. Yeah. He's just grown on me more and more, this song. I really like it. Alistair, do you like it? It's all right. Yeah. It reminded me of, uh, well, the title of it reminded me of a joke in uh, Abbott's Fab. Uh, with, uh, I think it was Bubble sat there with a little lap dog like on her knee and it was like, did you bring the laptop? But yeah, it's a solid sort of that's garage. Good, yeah. That's a good joke. <laughs> <laughs> it, was quite, it was quite good, yeah. The keys were brilliant though. I love them. Uh, I just think there should have been a lot more of the, the, the synthy noise in there. Uh, and yeah, I completely agree with you. What you're saying about the, the drums, Mr. Brendan, they are a bit middle of the road and just seem a bit, a bit out of place. They don't really do anything, but they seem a bit over the top. TT drums. Not what we come here for. Ezra, what do you make of this? Yeah, you know, this track wasn't really doing that much for me and I was wondering what it was that I wasn't enjoying. And you nailed it. It's those fucking drums, the drubbing of the drums. It's it's just a bit too much. But yeah, lyrically, it, it's wonderful. It's always wonderful to hear Mark pissing on modern technology and if ever I saw him pissing on a laptop, I would pull down my flies and join in wholeheartedly because it's all a load of fucking shit. And if you lose your laptop and you act like a junkie trying to get it back, then it's your own fault and you deserve to burn in hell. So, yeah, you know, ideologically, this song is top notch. Get off all, the fence, Ezra, and say all, reason- <laughs> all reasonable views. Philip? I, th- I think I've written a haiku. I- I've put annoying snur, bang, 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 I finally relented. You came round, didn't you? You came at the yeah. last moment. I thought it was I thought it was unbearable the first couple of times of listening to it, and then, I, I don't know, I think something broke inside me, and I just... <laughs> Like being interrogated. How many things am I holding up now? Whatever you said. Whatever the experiment said. must continue. <laughs> yeah, so I, it's, uh, I, 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 I don't know. I've, we've always been at war with Eurasia. Exactly. <laughs> what does T3, Terminator Tim 3, think? He is bellowed from the deepest abyss. I remembered this being better than it is. Doesn't really go anywhere, and the riff sounds to me like it's been nicked from somewhere. Goes on way too long. Uh, someone on the uh, annotated fault claimed it was ripped off of Jailbreak by Thin Lizzy. I'll have to go back and listen, but is it, is it a cover of that by Shylock? Right, mm. great band. On a what laptop yeah. dog? <laughs> Well, um, let's take a vote, shall we? It is boxomatosis up against laptop dogs. Um, Ezra? I've got to go boxomatosis. Okie dokie. Philip? I'm going to laptop top dog and then I'm going to the three minute hate after this. Exactly. Laptop dog box. Alistair? Up on the goddamn box. <sighs> I'm going for laptop dog, so it's coming down to T3, and sadly, 
looks like he's gonna go. That fucking annoying song. Open the goddamn box! Alright, so there we go. And that means that tonight, middle mass, a ladybird, pine leaves, and open the box oxytosis hashtag two, go through to the next round, and we say goodbye to some absolutely storming deep cut gems. It's been one of them, isn't it? It took us a while to warm up. We started off with a great um, Lovecraft pain. Am I saying that right? Well done, Ezra. Fantastic. Next week, we've got Hiram and Bob joining us from uh, the Puritan's Guide to Fall Guide podcast. Um, So it's an early one for me and Ezra and a late one for Alistair and Phil and God knows what those two will be like uh, at midnight. So... um, Jump upon booze. Jump upon booze and stumbling and putting, giving out opinions that are neither lucid nor reasonable. But um, that's it. Have a good week, Scott. And your boss, the boss for your nose hairs.